This is our first RPM Studio C3I Magazine podcast, and we have a very, very special guest today, uh, Harold Buchanan, and I think you'll know him as uh, the designer of Liberty or Death and the campaign 1777, a brand new uh, released from Strategy and Tactics uh, Decision Games. So Harold and I have known each other for a number of years. Uh, we met at the Los Angeles Game Convention a few years ago. And so we're meeting today. We're in Pasadena. And uh, we're going to do a little interview with uh, Harold uh, about his background as a designer and wargamer. So, where, Harold, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for entertaining me in this fashion, Roger. It's going to be fun to be on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> well, we thought it was about time that that, that, that happened. <laughs> a lot of time people just sort of take that for granted in terms of the, the person who asked the questions. So, yeah, we're turning the tables on you. So uh, let's start, if we could, with uh, with your beginning. Uh, as far as a war gamer is concerned, what, when, how old were you then, and and what was it that, that caught your eye? What got you into playing war games? What was your first war game? I had always had an interest in history when I was young, and a friend of mine, Andy Nutgrass, his dad was the principal, and uh, Andy had a copy of Battle of the Bulge. I think it was the first, so 63, 65. And we played Battle of the Bulge, and I remember the movie and thinking about the movie in context of the game and how cool that was. And the art on the box. You talk about the art of the box being evocative. I could, I could make all that connection. And one of the funny things about that was when I was a kid, I remember watching the movie, and they would talk about Bastogne and the famous response to the surrender command, nuts. And I always thought, what, why was Bastogne so important? And Bastogne was small, and it didn't really make sense to me. Why Bastogne? Why did we care about Bastogne? Why did the Germans care about Bastogne? But when we were playing the game, and the German onslaught was coming, pink counters and all, I could see on the map all of the roads came through Bastogne. And suddenly, the military importance clicked with me and it was driven by that game. And it, and it was my interest in history. My thirst wasn't quenched until I saw Bastogne on that map. I had an, a middle school teacher that also taught, well, he taught social studies, fundamentally history, in his application. And he got a bunch of us together to play diplomacy. So that was another game I played. And so these are all things that were happening in parallel. But then I started to see that there was a catalog inside those Avalon Hill boxes. And that catalog had all these cool games. And then we started to see them in our hobby stores and local department stores. So I picked up a Panzer Leader. And Panzer Leader, I'm absolutely convinced that in my youth, in my middle school and high school days, I never played it correctly. I, I guarantee I never played it correctly. But I would just sit and look at the counters and the silhouettes on the counters and it was just the most interesting thing in the world to me. So that was the that lit the fire that's propelled me. Now, what do you remember? What the first game was? Was there was there a game that you purchased or was given to you? Purchased Panzer Leader. It was and Panzer I, Leader, and I purchased it from the box cover. Wow, it was from the, the box cover. cover. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's Redmond Simonson, as you know. Yes. Um, and do you remember roughly what year that was? So 
probably 77, 78. Right, okay. Where were you living then? I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I grew up. And brothers and sisters? So I have a younger brother who's four years younger and then a sister who's six years younger. Now, was there any... Do you play war games with other friends, or did you become buddies with other guys who played war games? Yeah, so a couple of friends, right? So the one that introduced me to, to Battle of the Bulge, Andy, and then another friend, John, who's not with us anymore, but I had a rich history of of playing games, including John was, Andy was an Avalon Hill guy, uh-huh. right? And I remember my friends broke up between Avalon Hill people and strategy or SPI people. And my friend John was an SPI guy. Right. And so John loved everything SPI and um, he was a subscriber to strategy and tactics and like you couldn't wait until the next (laughs) one came out. And uh, I loved the the game shops had very different philosophies and you could see that in the games. And, um, and, and John's love for strategy and tactics was one of the reasons I wanted to do campaigns for 1777, uh-huh. which is in strategy and tactics 316, which I like because it's biblical, right? right. 316. Right. <laughs> uh, more importantly, a game that he would have loved and, uh, and it's, it's in strategy and tactics. So it was a nice, uh, gesture to him. And in the article in C3I, uh, where I talk about designer notes, I reference John. It's very nice. It's very nice. now. In terms of all that, was um, were you also into history? Were you reading history books on whatever subject you were actually playing? I did. Uh, I read a lot of history. The history that I that I would read would be modern history. Uh-huh. So the Arab-Israeli wars, the the conflicts of the Cold War, the things that were kind of close to home were of interest to me. So at the time, that's where I would spend my reading time. Now, was there any um, military background in your family? My father was in the Air Force, uh, and he was in the Air Force during the Korean War, but he was stationed in Europe. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a, a salt of the earth, plane mechanic, and, and uh, uh, an, interesting, an interesting guy um, uh, in, in many regards, and a heavy influence on me. And, but he also he shared an interest for history. Didn't have, didn't want anything to do with the games. Didn't understand what I, why I gamed them, right, uh-huh, and why right. I enjoyed them, and oftentimes why I would sit by myself at the table with the game spread out on the table and just play. And uh, I think it was, it was very confusing to him. But at the same time, he was, uh, he wonderfully supportive of anything I did, and saw this as an intellectual exercise. I think to some degree. Now, now for you, can you kind of recall what it is that you? You got out of this experience having played these games for a while now and obviously reading uh, on the subjects. Um, did this change you and change your outlook and your viewpoint on, on different things? It did. You know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book recently about, about uh, immersion into subjects and how you become excellent at something. Right? And this is a silly linkage, but I'm going to make it nonetheless. And one of the things he says is that if you develop 10,000 hours of experience at something, that you can become an expert at it. And that was, as I think back about the games and the influence those games have had on me, I spent thousands of hours gaming and thinking about gaming and reading rule books, et cetera, et cetera. 
And if I go back to Gladwell's application, right? Now, of course, his is real, real, real accomplishments, right? So he uses uh, Bill Gates and all of the work he did on a computer in high school and before that other people didn't have access to and how that grew into Microsoft. Now, I don't have that story, but the story I do have is I went into finance and I went into commodity trading. And commodity trading is all about, we're going to write a contract. What are the rules, right? And how is it going to work? And how do you game out this experience? And how am I going to make money doing that? And so I went into energy commodity trading and culminating with opening a hedge fund uh, that I sold about five years ago and opened it almost 15 years ago. And, and I have to tell you that I'm convinced that it's the experience of games and understanding how things worked and reading the rule books and understanding the intricacies and then trying to take advantage of that in competition <laughs> with my friends <laughs> that has driven me to be successful in the endeavor of trading, which, uh, which I, you know, and, and so it's had a tremendous impact. The other thing that I think is terrific about games is that uh, those games uh, provide a laboratory for all of us and how we deal with other people. And uh, for example, uh, if you and I are playing a game and we have a disagreement on the rules, so what do we do? Do we fight? Do we, we don't go to fists. We don't walk off. We debate it. And that laboratory is wonderful, right? Because in real life, that's what you have to do, right? In my corporate life, when I had a disagreement with somebody, we would have to sit and talk about it and figure it out. Now, the good news is before I got to corporate life, I had a lot of experience disagreeing with someone and respecting them enough to say, look, here's why I think this is true, but I want to understand more about why you think it's true, and then let's resolve it. And, and I think that made me more successful in big corporate life and later in the hedge fund uh, than I would have been if I didn't have that experience gaming. Well, that brings to mind in terms of war games, players that you played against as you grew up, some of them played to win. Some of them played because they wanted to learn about the history. Where were you? In the early days, I hate to admit it, but I probably was play to win. Uh, certainly when I ran my hedge fund, I had to play to win because you're playing with other people's money, and that's a bad thing if you lose that. <laughs> uh, so, so unfortunately, that's probably the case, but that's not where I am now. And, and it's, I select my opponents where I am now by, by, by what their goals are, right? And, and I think it's, it's, it's a fantastic point that you make, that there are some people that are so focused on winning that I don't enjoy playing with them. And, and this is just my preference. I don't know what's right or wrong, right? I'm not saying it's wrong uh, to be fo completely focused on winning. But what I would rather do is sit around, have a good experience with another person, debate the issues. There's nothing I like more than the half hour we spend after the game debating, well, this was interesting when this happened, and this could have happened. What if I'd taken this path? That's a very interesting discussion. It doesn't matter who wins or loses. So for me, now it's all about digging into the history. Our, our common friend, Mark Herman, I love playing games with Mark Herman. Now, he plays to win, there's no doubt. But when he plays, he immerses himself 
in the game. He becomes the commander. He doesn't talk about pieces and points at locations. He talks about cities. He talks about the unit and the unit history. He talks about what happened, right? So he immerses himself. And, and I'm, I'm trying to become that, but I certainly play more for the history than for the win. Now, as a accomplished game designer, Liberty or Death, um, campaigns of 1777, has this changed your perspective at all in terms of the hobby, in terms of what you're doing and your future as a game designer? Well, uh, accomplished, you're very kind to say that. I, I have designed a couple of games, and, and, uh, and, and I'm excited about the reception. But I, I, a couple of things have, have really struck home. First is the amount of time and effort it takes to finish a game. The idea, fine. Prototype, fine. Starting playtesting, fine. The last 5% takes forever. Everybody's tired, and you still finish it, right? And then all of the other people, uh, you've been involved in Liberty or Death with me and your hard work and the developer and, the, and, and Charlie Kibler and Mike, Mark Simonich and, and so many other people that are involved that really don't make much, right? It's, it's a labor of love, and everybody puts a tremendous amount of time, works really hard, and doesn't make much money, right? So, I mean, it really is a labor of love. And you really appreciate it when you get in the middle of it and you, and you see what happens. And, and you know, I don't, I, I don't have a problem with that I didn't become rich over the game, right? That, that wasn't my goal. And I design a game for other reasons. But when you see the amount of time that so many people put in and so little compensation it changes your perspective on how, what a gift it is that there are designers that do this work for us. That it, it's just incredible that people are willing to do this and provide us with these games. So it makes me much more tolerant of errata, of little problems in the map, uh, of this line that should be over here, but it's over here, right? Um, and uh, it that has completely changed my perspective on things. So... Um, so that's the biggest that's the biggest thing that impacts me is I'm just so much more appreciative and so much more tolerant of little things that are wrong in a hobby where people are working for for the love of the hobby. Would you uh, give us an idea of the game designs you're working on right now? Let me see what can I talk about? Well, you know, Flashpoint South China Sea is a game that I'm working on now. It's on GMT P500. It's crossed the 500 threshold. I wanted to design a game that dealt with this odd conflict where there are a lot of surrogates, five other nations that kind of fit between China's claims and our willing, our desire to defend those claims and how all that plays out. And uh, so I wanted to develop a simple game that plays in 30 minutes on that topic. I thought that would be easy. I was completely wrong. It is really hard. Part of the problem is my standard. I want it to be a fun game that you can play over and enjoy it. And if it's not, I'm not going to, yeah, we're going to start over again. So I've started over three or four times. And, uh, and I've put it in front of Mark Herman. I put it in front of Volko. Ananda Gupta uh, has looked at it. And uh, I've gotten so much good input, input. And now I think it's where we need it to be. So that, that game is almost finished. Um, we're, we're doing some play testing to calibrate it. And then we're going to do a solo system. So once everything's bolted down, we're going to do a little solo system around it too. 
but it's going to be fun, right? It's an inexpensive game relative to the other games that GMT produces. Uh, it's going to be fast play, small map, play in 30 minutes once you kind of know it. Uh, so you, said, you say solo system. Uh, where would the focus be on the solo system? So I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of different things, but the idea is to have at least one system where players can say, okay, I'm going to play the U.S. side, and all of the decisions by the Chinese side will be made based on cards, card plays. So, so I literally can play a system that's playing for the Chinese. So that's the idea. And the idea is to, you know, Bruce Mansfield, who just did Gandhi, the, the, la the latest coin game, has done a tremendous job with the utilization of cards. And uh, so, so I'm excited about that. And, and, um, and so that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the goal with, with Flashpoint South China Sea. It's an interesting system because it's one we can use for other conflicts, right? I've talked to Gene about some other conflicts that I think are really cool. Uh, some, some of the most obvious would be, you know, the conflict for, uh, for, for the Arctic uh, territories, right? And, and, and how Russia and China and the United States and other minor powers are trying to, trying to get control there, right? As, as uh, you know, with, with climate change, um, the sea lanes become more important. There's so, so much importance to that area and, and it's going to be battled over and it's modern. The other thing I've thought about is there's a, a clearly a, a competition going on right now. And actually this game system can be used for any competition between two parties. The other competition uh, that I, that's very interesting to me is the competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? That's happening real time. And uh, that's another war gamey kind of thing that we could model with this system if we if if people found it interesting, and we'll see. Are you saying are you thinking there that it might become a series by itself? Well, it could, but but it really I, you know I don't want to do it if people don't aren't interested in it. So if it's not interesting, it's an experiment right now. Frankly, you know, uh, it's an experiment. So we'll see, but uh, it's possible. The other things we could do are sort of some some weird competitions. So uh, Edison and Tesla competed. Huh. For direct current and alternating current, right, yeah. and uh, that was a nasty fight. Yeah. Uh, Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci competed, uh, and and that's a very yeah. interesting time with with some very interesting graphics associated with those times. So you're, so you're open to lots of different subjects. I but you know once again somebody has to find it interesting. So so we'll see. So that's uh, you'd ask what else I was working on. I, a friend of mine, Treg, Julander, and I have created a party game that uh, USAopoly uh, option for a while, but, but uh, we've since uh, take it to uh, breaking games uh, and uh, are working with them to uh, we've signed with them and we're working with them uh, to, to put it hopefully in Walmart and Kmart and, and uh, I guess all the marts uh, <laughs> is, is the goal. And, and it's a, it's a game very similar to apples to apples, uh -huh. apples and apples. Right. Yeah. Where you have these themes and then you have music, and uh, so we found a way to, to to build music into the apples and apples. So, you know, one of the funny sort of themes would be the song that best describes my mother-in-law, and you can imagine all of the, the, the classic rock songs that we could use to say terrible things about our mother-in-law or wonderful things, depending on your perspective. But uh, uh, that's that's kind of how it plays. So that's um, that's another thing. I've uh, Mark Herman and I have a little project that we're working on that I can't talk about, 
but but you know proximity to Mark Herman to me is valuable, so I'll I'll do anything. I'll I'll carry his luggage if he'll let me work on a game <laughs> with him. Uh, Doug's son and I are working on another game, a coin game that I can't talk about. Um, Liberty or Death is uh, we just sold out of the second printing of Liberty or Death, so the third printing's coming up. I have some decisions to make about that. There's not much errata, uh, but I've always been disappointed in how powerful or not powerful the um, the Declaration of Independence card is. So I'm going to make it more powerful in the game and, and so in the third printing. So I have little things in that context to work through. Well, actually bringing that up, uh, Liberty or Death, and of course now with campaigns of 1777, obviously they're both the, the same historical period. Um, what is it about that historical period that appeals to you so much? Well, you know, I was enamored with the American Revolution since since I was a kid, you know, since I had that first U.S. history class. Uh, love to read about it. Uh, it's just such a romantic time. I love the uh, I love the Sons of Liberty and what they would do and, and how they would work the system to create the rebellion, right, between 1763 and, and, uh, um, and the beginning of the war in 1775. There's, there's so much interesting stuff that I've researched and, and loved. And then I went to graduate school in, uh, in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. So I went to MIT, and between classes, if I had a break that had a, that had a two-class break, I could walk to the USS Constitution, right, which was, of course, the end of the American Revolution, and, the, and then up the Freedom Trail to the Bunker Hill Museum. And then I could make it back to class and get a quick lunch and go to the next class. And uh, I would do that over and over <laughs> and over. And uh, so, so that location just propelled me into the Freedom Trail in Boston. And Boston is the American Revolution. It's really a, you know, it's, it's the most European of American cities, I think, perhaps San Francisco. But, but the history that's there for that war is tremendous. And so I spent you know, two years immersed in that, walking around it, touching it, tasting it, reading about it. I remember uh, I had a I had of course I had I had work to do school work to do, but at the same time I had a big tome on the American Revolution that sat on my desk. And every now and then I'd flip through and read another chapter, and uh, loved it. Well, of all the the leaders of the American Revolution, um, who do you most admire? Well, the easy answer is George Washington, because uh, you know people ask. Oftentimes, you know, what what would have changed? What 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 would have changed the outcome of the war? And one of the things I like to say is if Washington had purely been immortal, it would have changed everything. His accomplishments are extraordinary and certainly written in the context of the success and the history. Right. And the the, the, the winner writes the history. And, and if you assume that it's highly biased, it's still unbelievable. It's still extraordinary what Washington was able to do, his perseverance, the challenges he faced, his leadership in combat, ironically known as the master of retreat, because he couldn't afford to lose his, his army. And, and over and over, he would pull them out of trouble. That's just unbelievable. Um, and then the first president, right, for two terms. And, and, you know, there's, if you look at, if you look at the state of, of in, in 1783, 
we signed the peace treaty and then Washington at, at that point, we're 13 unrelated colonies that really don't like each other. Right. Except that we didn't like England and, and their rule and how extraordinary it is that we came out of that with a, uh, with, with what at this point is the most powerful nation on earth. It's just unbelievable what he did and his, his leadership. So, so that's the easy one. Um, love Benedict Arnold, uh, not a popular opinion, but I think you have to read about him. Um, and I think, uh, what was it about Benedict Arnold that you most admire? Well, he, he was, he sold out a hundred percent to the cause and, um, and really uh, made some bad choices we all know about, but also a victim of a lot of circumstances and the terrible politics of the Continental Congress at the time. And so I don't forgive him for, for what he did at the end, but uh, his, his leadership was extraordinary. And if I can jump over to the British side, Clinton uh, was General Clinton, who was the, 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 the head of uh, North America at the end of the war the last four years, five years, was extraordinary as well. Clinton was at Bunker Hill and was, was in the war at, at, at some point, because, not because he wanted to, but because the king required him to be there. But Clinton uh, was one of the generals who said after Bunker Hill, which, you know, the British technically won, but we're talking about a thousand, thousand British soldiers that were killed or injured in Bunker Hill. And they can't, keep replenishing soldiers. So, so it was really an extraordinary outcome for the, for the Patriots. But Clinton said, we can't, we can't afford another victory like this. And uh, he's also one of the first to be credited with saying, we have to win the hearts and minds. Now, is that essentially an, an insurgency uh, concept? There's a great deal of evidence that the British referred to the Patriot rebels as insurgents. And so, I, in my mind, it is a classic insurgency. Now, was that, was that part of what the British commanders were dealing with? That is to say, there wasn't a consensus among the British as to how to deal with the Americans? Yes, and there wasn't a consensus. Uh, they had dealt with insurgencies before, usually crushing them with, with overwhelming strength. It's the most powerful army in the world and navy in the world at the time. But they disagreed and they were wrong as to how much support they would pull from the populists, right? So Tory support. And uh, I think that's one of the critical mistakes that the British made was assuming that if they would move into a city or a region that the populace would celebrate and, and come to their aid and and provide them with soldiers. And it, it just didn't happen to the extent that they needed it to or wanted it to. Now, um, let me ask you about uh, the success of your podcast. You've been doing them for quite a while now. How did, uh, how did all that start for you? Uh, what motivated you? What, in a sense, is your objective now that you're you know, quite successful with your podcast. Well, thank you for saying successful. And, and we just crossed 50,000 downloads, which is terrific for the niche hobby that we're in. I, I'm excited that people are that interested in what we talk about. For me, I just thought it was interesting that I meet so many 
interesting people like yourself, Mark Herman, Volko, list of others. And I'm not afraid to talk to people and talk about what they're doing. And, and I, and just like you and I had a conversation earlier without our headphones on, and, and I turned to Stephen and I said, I wish we had that on tape. I think that all the time. I, we, we were in, uh, I, you know, I was, I was playing yesterday with uh, Doug's son and Jeremy um, White, and, and we were talking about World War II planes in Down in Flames. And we had this conversation for about 15 minutes. And I'm a neophyte, so I'm really not in the conversation. But it was so interesting hearing those two guys talk about And I thought, why did we get this on tape? <laughs> and I, so I think about that all the time. And the, and the reason is I just want to share it. I don't, I don't want to sit on a podcast and talk. This is a very uncomfortable situation for me. I, I'm a shameless self-promoter, yes. But, but, I am, but, I, but it is embarrassing for me to sit here and talk about myself. But I love to talk to interesting people like yourself, record it, and share it with others. I just think that's a, that's a cool thing, and I feel really good providing that sort of service. I also think it's cool that the podcasting stuff has become hot. I listen to a number of them myself on a regular basis. It's a cool medium, so I thought I'd try to experiment with it. And then the third thing is all this gadgetry here sitting between us. I love gadgets. I love gadgets, and I like playing with software, and so this is just an excuse for me to play with more gadgets and buy more stuff. <laughs> well, there's another aspect to that as well. Um, and, and I'd like you to talk about that. Um, are you a movie fan? Do you, do you watch movies? Do you like movies? Do you collect DVDs? Where, that sort of thing? I, I do. I, I don't have it. I don't, I, I spend my time in other ways, right? So it's not that I don't have time to do it. I just choose to do other things including playtesting my games and all the other things that you have to do when you're a designer. But I, but I enjoy movies, yes. What I'm getting at here is that I'm sure you've noticed that with um, many of them today, not only is the movie there, but there are all these extras. And more often than not, there are, there's commentary, which is like a podcast. Uh, and you're getting history, you're getting behind the scenes, you're getting background on the people and the people that made the movie or the people that were involved in the production, whatever it may be. Uh, is that part of what motivates you? It is. So you have people playing games, and then I talk to Mark Herman about the game that he designed, and the people that love his game get a different perspective on it. So that's, that's an interesting parallel because that's exactly what's happening, isn't it? Yeah, I think with that too, it's... Um, I know I'm looking back with my own magazine, uh, my first one, Fire and Movement, but I've continued it with uh, C3I magazine over the years, uh, doing interviews as you're doing, but obviously in a magazine format, um, and how in perspective uh, those interviews are, to some extent, a history of the hobby. So your podcasts are much the same. It's an interesting it's an interesting view and I think it's really important to interview you because I think that your biography needs to get out. People need to understand. People want to understand. They want to know who Roger McGowan is and they want to know what you were thinking about when you did the Russian uh, campaign cover or the squad leader cover. That's all part of them building on their understanding of the history of the of the hobby. 
Well, I think you're you're right, and uh, I think with the the podcast, uh, you know, you're you're doing that in a very very important way. Um, are there um, uh, people in particular right now that uh, you're trying to uh, set up a future podcast with? Well, I've tried for a year and a half to set up a podcast with Roger McGowan. <laughs> so success. So we've we've recorded the first part of that. I'm very excited to start the process and and share. Uh, with the world. There are a handful of others that I would like to talk to. One of the funny ones, I think, is David Doctor. David oh, yes. Doctor did a podcast. Good friends of Mark Herman. Yes, and Guns, Dice, and Butter, right. which is fantastic. It was great stuff. And I would like to talk to him. Yeah. So we're working on that. That's going to be one of the good ones. And of course, my buddy Bruce Garrick, who does the Wild Weasel podcast, right is terrific, but for some reason he's doing other things right now and hasn't updated his podcast. I wish he would, uh, and and I'd like to talk to him on the, I've talked to him all the time. I'd like to talk to him on a podcast and 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 share some of that because I think you know those are the two in my mind most influential war game podcasters to date, and I'd like to get them on the same on the same line. Um, I would love to have um, Dunnigan uh, on tape. Don Greenwood is another standard that uh, I would like to get on tape and and talk to him about what's going on. I'd like to do a piece on the history of SPI with uh, as many that were connected with SPI as are around. Uh, I'd like to do one on the history of Avalon Hill, right? So I have some 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 things like that I'd like to do. Uh, I also want to branch out. Uh, so um, I have uh, a, a, uh, a Nobel laureate at UCSD that I want to interview and talk about games even though he doesn't play games. Uh, so so uh, I'll, I'll leave that. We'll, that one will remain nameless. There are a few Nobel laureates at UCSD, so you can, you can guess. Um, I have a friend uh, that I coached football with for a long time uh, that is uh, that played the NFL, and I'd like to talk to him about games. And um, I'm assuming you're an NFL fan. Well, I, I'm a football fan. I'm a college football fan primarily. College. Okay. But 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 it's interesting to see to talk to somebody that played at the NFL level and played for 12 years about what that what what a game's like, right? Because it, he has all of the same characteristics of the games we play. You have a rule book, right? You have strategies. You have decisions. You have the execution of the strategies. All of that stuff happens on that that hundred yard by forty three yard football field. So, so I think it's uh, it. I think that would be a fun, interesting one to do. So I'd like to branch out a little bit beyond just war games. Uh, and and so when you when I open it up like that, then the, there becomes a very large universe of people that I could interview. Now with uh, all the all the things that we've talked about that you've been involved in, <clears throat> on top of everything else. You've also created the San Diego Game Convention. Can you give us a background on, you know, basically how it all started? You know, where your inspiration for that was, and uh, where where the convention's going now? Give us a preview of coming attractions. Sure. Well, so when I went when I went to college, I stopped gaming. And I stopped gaming because I became very serious about school, and then I became very serious about my career, and then became very serious. At, uh, and and then on top of that, uh, you know, and then I get married after college and and have a family, and so it was very hard for me to to move back to war gaming, and and probably that coupled with the loss of my friend John that I talked about uh, would 
but just after college. Probably made it hard for me to game now that I think about it, but I didn't game for almost 30 years. I didn't war game. So I did a little bit of video gaming because it's easy to turn it on and turn it off. But then when my kids started to, to leave the house, uh, they're all out now. Uh, and so with the empty nest, I had some free time that wasn't spent at soccer tournaments or golf matches or, or softball games. And so I decided then that I would try to dig back into this hobby that I love so much. And I made a few connections. But what I found was that there, there were very small groups. I found an incredible hobby, right? Tons of games, Euros, different world, multiplayer games. But I also found uh, that Board Game Geek was there, Consum World uh, was there, and connected us better. But there were still just very small groups in San Diego. And so I started to go out and meet with them and, and, and really just trying to find interesting people to play games with. And I realized that the more people that I had access to, right, the more people I had relationships to, the more options I had. Because this person liked to play squad leader, this person liked to play combat commander, and this person liked to play something else. So if I wanted to play one of those games, the bigger the universe, the more options and the better, the more timing options I had as well. So I kept thinking about it, like, what do you do? So networking was a strength of mine also from the corporate world. And... You know, I thought about the the, the, the the Gandhi quote, right? Be the change that you want in the world. And I said, I'm going to start organizing this stuff. And so where it started was a group that you and I have talked about a number of times is that Camp Pendleton uh, Conflict Simulation War Game Club. And, uh, and I went there and I, I met with those guys and uh, we set up an event for their 30th anniversary. And you actually you supported us on that and I appreciate it. But we set up an event where anybody that's ever been there was invited. There were giveaways. I bought everybody lunch. And we had over 100 people there with their families that came to celebrate that club. And that was the coolest thing. When I first started going to that club, we might have six people at a meeting. And we, could, we built it to that. So, so that, was, that was one step. Uh, we now have the San Diego Wargamers. And uh, we meet at three different places across the county every week. And we have over 100 members, 120, 130 members that meet at those game stores and play. And it's just, you know, and, and it's and it's not just my effort. Right. But I, but it's it's networking and organization and getting people making a meeting a reason for people to come out. Right. Because we're doing cool stuff, taking pictures of what we do, sharing it online, all those things. Uh, setting up somewhere, showing up regularly, being welcoming and kind when new people come, all those things that we don't do so good <laughs> as, uh, as war gamers uh, helps us build that group. And then five years ago, uh, I was talking to our mutual friend, Gene Billingsley. And I said, you know, I kind of want to do a convention. He said, yeah, let's do it. And he said he would, he would support, you were an early supporter as well. And with a number of other supporters, we set up this convention that draws 150 people frankly, from all over the country and some from out of the country, right? Canadian, one coming from the UK this year. And it's a terrific place for us to meet and talk about war games. And it just builds on this networking effect in San Diego. So come to San Diego and war game because there's plenty uh -huh. of people and there's a lot going on. And, uh, you know, and at these, at the San Diego Historical Games Convention, 
what we've become known for is that you can come there and play with the designers. So Mark Herman will be there. Volca will be there. Mark Slamanich is coming, and he's excited to spend three days playing games with people. Uh, Cole Worley's coming, uh, who did uh, John Company and Root, and, and he's excited to come and engage. Um, and that's just scratching the surface, right? Uh, you know, I've done a game. Trevor Bender's done a game. There's a whole host of people that have designed games that will be there demoing and talking. And so people love to come to that convention because you, it's, it's small and it's intimate and you touch and you deal with the original designers. Well, thank you very much for the interview, uh, for our very first podcast. It's been an honor and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Well, very kind of you to invite me to do this, and uh, I appreciate it. And look forward to hearing more from your growing podcast portfolio. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, all the best. Thanks, Brian.